My name is Scott Chaloner and you are listening to the Leaders' Council podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. Now, as regular listeners of our programme will know very well, part of our mission here at the Leaders' Council is to bring you a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. And to this end, I'm delighted to welcome Adam Stiles, partner at Helix Financial Partners and MD of Helix Structured Finance onto today's show. Uh, Adam, very warm welcome to yourself and thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much, Doug. Yes, Adam, it's uh, my pleasure having you on the uh, the programme as well. Now, um, just to sort of get a little bit more of an insight as to what it is that you do for the listeners that might not be familiar with you, could you just some sort of summarise for us what it is that Helix really specialises in? Sure. So in a very in a nutshell, uh, Helix Financial Partners is a regulated business which uh, brokers regulated mortgages uh, in terms of residential and buy-to-let. And Helix Structured Finance does non-regulated uh, financing in terms of bridging development and commercial finance. Fantastic. So sort of a very broad spectrum of things that you're working on within that particular market, then I think it's fair to say. And uh, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty much uh, anything property based. Uh, property financing is, is, you know, just our core competence, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, given what's been going on with interest rates, uh, for instance, there's been a lot of sort of disruption, I think it's fair to say, in the uh, the market um, of late. And I'm sure we'll get onto a little bit of that uh, later absolutely. on in the, uh, the programme, of course. Uh, but just kind of uh, sort of getting an idea together of how you got to uh, to where you are today, Adam. Um, obviously, you've been a self-employed mortgage broker for sort of about 15 years, haven't you? So you've been in the industry for quite a long time. Did you always know that sort of going down this route was going to be the pathway for you? Uh, no, it's, I don't think anyone sets out to be a mortgage broker. I just kind of landed in it. But I, I always wanted to be self-employed and I always wanted to do something in finance. So that was, I suppose that was always at the back of my mind. Uh, and it was actually uh, just before I started in mortgage, it was in 2007. So just only a year before uh, the financial crash, which was, I suppose, good and bad timing in many ways. Mm. Uh, I was running a horse-drawn carriage business and uh, working for the Surrey Chambers of Commerce. And my my boss at the time said, uh, basically said that I was very, very bad at my job um, and I should probably be doing something uh, with uh, or in the same industry as her son, which happened to be financial services. Uh, so she put me forward for that. And um, six interviews later, I landed in a job in the city uh, which was self-employed, uh, no leads, no basic kind of a computer and off you go sort of thing. Uh, but at the time, I, d- I had no responsibility, so I thought it was a good time. If I was ever going to do something like that, that was the time to do it. And I'm very glad I did it. It was very hard, but uh, it, it, was, uh, it, it gave me the best grounding for where I am today. Yeah, and I suppose your experience of a previous recession, I guess that kind of holds you in good stead for the challenges of today, given what's going on, and also so, sort of to an extent the challenges of the future as well, doesn't it? Because I suppose every day is a school day from a leadership perspective, and every challenge that we face and every mistake that we make along the way, it's about learning from that, isn't it, and le- using it to improve. Absolutely. And, and, you know, 15, 16 years into this, there's not a day that goes by that you don't learn something. And even deals that don't go through, you always learn something you know, on everything that you do. Um, I think part of being a leader is you're you're always in an uncharted territory, but with experience comes ways of dealing with things better. Um, so, yeah, I've been through a previous crash. So what that's taught me is you know keep a level head and and just be mindful of 
everything that you're doing um, and not not panic because uh, it's very easy to do that when you see you know the world collapsing around you financially in terms of you know certainly in mortgages with rates and and things like that but um, we at the end of the day economies are cyclical so it's not always going to be that way and some are quicker than others so where we've had interest rate problems in the, the last kind of a month six weeks mm. um, it was uh, it was fair to say it was carnage for a few weeks where you had a lot of people ring up very concerned understandably um, but you know it has calmed down a lot and we knew it would do it's just a question of how long that would take um, but it, I suppose that's why you know you seek professional advice is because you know we live and breathe this sort of thing and that's not just you know, financial advisors or mortgage brokers it's solicitors, accountants, and all those sorts of professionals who can help any business, um, you know, because we are removed from someone's emotional situation. When they're buying a house, I'm not buying that house, but they are. But, you know, we we, we treat it as if it is ours, but, you know, we, there's an, a level of emotional disconnect that we can make sure that, you know, things go through and we're not guided necessarily by um, you know, our, our feelings, I suppose, so to speak. But you know, there's always beauty of care for everyone that we speak to. Yeah, exactly right. And I think you, you, you're very right in what you say as well, and that the economy is cyclical and, you know, sort of there's a lot of lessons to take from the last financial crash, but there are also some fundamental Absolutely. differences, um, aren't there, uh, this time around, I guess, uh, compared to last time. You could even argue in some senses that sort of the previous one was even more severe than it is now, sort of from a business sense. So um, just thinking about kind of the impact on the uh, the mortgage market in any case, um, how does it sort of compare to, uh, to 2008? I mean, what, what would you say is the problem? Prognosis this time around? Well, the last time it was a liquidity problem. Uh, it, you know, there just wasn't the funds to back any mortgages, and everyone, you know, the, the way way lenders are financed, you know, one lender can be very different to another. Uh, what we had in 2008 was a financial crash. This is not a financial crash. This is uh, a whole plethora of variables from, you know, the war in Ukraine with mm. uh, supply of food and materials for, for construction, uh, inflation. Uh, the cost of living through, you know, petrol and and uh, a basket of household goods that are are causing this sort of thing. Whereas lenders have money, they just don't know how to price, how to put it out the door, especially over the last few weeks. Uh, what we're finding now is it is calming down, uh, but there is still that volatility buffer of artificially high rates. So uh, we are seeing rates coming down slowly. Um, I think. A large problem has been psychologically uh, in the mortgage market. And what I mean from that is uh, we've seen rates from 1% earlier in the year jump up to, you know, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, mm. depending on what type of finance you're after. So to go from that in the space of 10, 11 months, psychologically, when you're coming to remortgage and suddenly your mortgage payments are a few hundred pounds or a few thousand pounds more a month, that's, that's scary for a lot of people. Now, lenders still have a duty of care to lend responsibly uh, for people that can afford it. But, you know, that, that disposable income diminishing is, is quite scary for a lot of people. Um, so, uh, you know, people have got used to very, very cheap credit, cheap mortgages and cheap interest. Um, but historically, that's not always been the case. So, mm. we, you know, five and sixes are, are normal. But people have got used to ones and twos for the last 10, 15 years. Uh, 10 or 12 years so it's 
where we'd normally have three to five years to almost wean people off uh, cheap credit, we've had nine, nine, ten, eleven months. So that that's been very scary for people. Um, but banks are still lending. That's not an issue. But um, I think another thing is a lot of lenders have hit their targets for the year, so they're not motivated to drop them too far down. And no one wants to be the cheapest person on the block because they can't keep up with servicing that level of applications. But I think uh, Q1 next year uh, we'll see hopefully a little bit of uh, calm and, and, and you know sensible lending in terms of rates. Uh, coming down a bit. I mean, that that's my opinion. That's not advice. Anything can happen, as we've seen in the last 10 months. But um, we're hoping that that will be the case, um, uh, you know, early next year. Yeah, hopefully so. And um, I think you're very right in kind of what you say as well. That this, this isn't necessarily the worst that we've seen in terms of interest rates. I mean, you go back to the sort of 80s, for instance, and we've seen double digits, haven't we, in the past? And uh, this essentially yeah. is, um, it d- doesn't really compare to that, does it? I mean, it's like we're talking sort of fives to sevens, as you say, and then we've been used to sort of ones and twos in the past. And I guess... Um, some of the effects um, that we've seen in uh, recent months as well. I mean, I know, of course, our rates have been pushed up by sort of the Bank of England inflating the uh, the bank rate in response to the cost of living crisis. But do you think some of that is also down to sort of the approach that was taken after uh, 2008 as well, in the sense that, you know, margins had to widen? And we've seen sort of a uh, sort of a widening of the gap between, say, the standard variable and um, the, the, the bank rate as it's been set. I mean, and that's as a response to something that has happened before to make sure that, say, there is volatility you know, we're in a good position as lenders to keep doing what we're doing. Well, there's a few points there. I think look, Bank of England only has one mechanism mm. uh, to control things, whereas a lot of lenders uh, borrow and lend money through what, what's called the swap market. So uh, what used to be LIBOR is now the Sonia rate. So that's a different that's a different industry to, to, to borrow money. Mm. And what we've seen is that's dropped quite considerably since, so the mini, after the mini budget, it rocketed, uh, but it kept on moving huge, huge amounts in hours and days. Whereas we'd normally see that sort of movement over the course of months, if not slightly longer. And this was going down to hours and days. So there was a lot of panic in the market, especially from lenders of, we just don't know how to price any of our money at the moment. Uh, now the markets have calmed down and those swap rates have dropped, but lenders haven't dropped their rates commensurate to that. That's why we know there's quite a large buffer to come. So when uh, Bank of England increased their rates by 0.75, hardly any of the lenders increased their rates because they'd already priced that in. Um, Mm. So that is only one mechanism of how lenders actually price their money. Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it, just to really sort of get an insight into sort of how the two sort of work in parallel to each other, because it is something as well that isn't necessarily greatly understood, is it? And it just sort of casts my mind back to a discussion that I had on this very programme as well, actually. And uh, somebody put to me that part of a big problem in uh, in this country especially is that we don't really educate youngsters enough really about, about finance, do we? And I guess from a leadership perspective, if we're thinking about sort of future talent flowing into the industry, maybe that's something that we do need to look at. I, I, do you know what, Scott? I couldn't agree more, and that's a conversation that uh, came up only a few days ago uh, with my colleagues. It, you know, it's, it, it's bearing in mind how important finance is, personal finance, credit cards, mortgages, overdrafts, loans, higher purchase, all of those things that have an impact on our day-to-day life. And there doesn't seem to be any, obviously, to the best of my knowledge, it's been a while since I've been at school, but certainly when I was at school, there was no... There was no education on how interest rates work and 
how how impactful your your, your behaviour and your your credit file is and things like that. Um, it's that's so important. Now you know we're seeing certain lenders that offer these courses and and things like that, and, and I think it's becoming more and more apparent that that sort of education is needed. But then you know I remember casting my mind back to 10, 12 years ago, there was a guy who joined the company that was at who who worked at uh, one of the big banks and he was under the impression that all banks were the same. They, all, they lent the same money, they lent at the same rates and they lent them the same criteria. And that was someone who worked in a bank. So mm. there's, a, there's a long way to go on, on education. And I think, I mean, let's face it, having any, any kind of financial education, just it's so useful. Um, on, on all for all walks of life, all to any job that you've got, um, any stage of life to have just a bit of financial education is is crucial. It is, isn't it? And you know, when we're talking about sort of times where there are a lot of key industries in the UK economy suffering from, say, sort of skills and talent shortages. I mean, and we're seeing a lot of uh, sort of statistics coming out and a lot of noise being made about that. Certainly, we're looking at construction, for instance, there and sort of the engineering sectors, aren't we? For example. I mean, I suppose you could say, you mean, the same applies to finance as well. And it, it's all about the fact that, like, there needs to be the education to sort of get the uh, the future workforce into these industries. And like I say, I mean, as I've said there, finances are just as relevant to that. Definitely. And actually, you hit the nail on the head there is, is actually, to a degree, the demographic of people going into certain industries. So, for instance, people who work in financial services, we're very heavily weighted to uh, advisors who will retire in the next five years. Mm. So you know, it's it's lovely to see uh, young people come up and through it. I mean, I'm I'm pushing forty, so I'm kind of midway. Uh, but there aren't loads of us at my age. They're generally, you know, late fifties, early sixties. And I, I I don't want to misquote any stats here, but there's a very high percentage that will retire in the next five years, which. Uh, good or bad. I mean, as an advisor, in many ways, that means that there's less competition for for clients. But at the same time, there's a lot of clients that need advisors. So that, that's that's not good for them. But there's a huge opportunity in finance. And also, as you touched upon uh, construction as well, there's a huge uh, labour and skills shortage in construction. And the government are always spouting these targets to hit for uh, building these houses. But if you haven't got the people to build them, then you're never going to hit those targets. And Obviously, there's a lot more to it than that. There's, you know, problems with uh, planning and, um, you know, a lot of these larger uh, construction companies have, have built up large land banks. So it's making it harder for the small guy to contribute. But um, labor shortage and skill shortage is, is a big problem in many industries. Mm. Look at nurses, for instance, and the, and the, and the healthcare sector. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think there's a silver bullet to any of these, but it's, it's uh, definitely a concern no it is and um, I suppose in the uh, the case of the nurses as you've just mentioned there I mean I guess the key issues there are sort of low remuneration for the work that they do but also sort of well-being at work and the demands that are inflicted on them in what is a very very uh, stressful role and uh, I suppose if we look at the uh, the finance industry and why we maybe don't see as many young people coming through into the sector I'm guessing that how lucrative the industry is isn't really a problem, but um, what do you think maybe the issue is that is dissuading some people from uh, from coming through? I mean, is there anything that's quite obvious that sticks out? Um, that's a good question. Um, 
I mean, in terms of actually, get, let's let's say mortgage broking, for instance. Mm. Um, you know, technically, you don't need any qualifications to do the non-regulated side, which is bridging, developing, commercial. But if you're doing the regulated side, you do need to pass some exams. Now, those those exams, I wouldn't say, are particularly strenuous in terms of how much you need to learn. But they, they, there is a lot of complications to it. Now, that, that you know, as soon as exams are uh, put in front of people. A lot of people have, uh, are put off, understandably. Um, but, you know, they've, they've you know, gone to A-levels, uni, GCSE, and they've had enough. But, you know, there's certain, in what we do, certainly on the regulated side, where we're dealing with people's houses, mm. uh, there is a level of um, duty of care and, um, it, you know, it, 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 uh, there's a lot of care around how much uh, education and exams that we do to make sure that we're giving proper advice and that that's absolutely crucial because we are dealing with people's uh roofs over their head which is so important um perhaps i don't know if it's maybe uh a lot of people don't maybe they don't find it interesting or uh, they don't know enough about it that's that, that's probably a, a larger um consideration is mm. um you know not perhaps not knowing the route into the market um, I don't know the stats on how many new brokers are coming into the market. Uh, you know, we're always on the lookout for uh, brokers who are, are hungry and driven. I mean, there, there are two sides to the, the market, which is the employed broker and the self-employed broker. So quite often you'll see, uh, you know, banks have uh, internal brokers that just uh, advise on their own lenders' products. Uh, you've got a lot of uh, state agency brokers that tend to be employed, um, but a lot, a lot of the market are actually self-employed. So that is very daunting to a lot of people, um, and it, it there is a very distinct difference between an employed broker and a self-employed broker. Mm. In you know, you know, they're, they're just because of how you're remunerated. You know, if you've got a nine to five and you're fed you know, leads and deals and referrals and you sit there and you, you know, advise on mortgages and, you know, at five o'clock you leave home. That's fine. That's great. That, that suits a lot of people. Um, and there'd there be certainly a lending, uh, sorry, not a, an, an earning cap on that. Mm. But self-employed is very much, well, you eat what you kill and, and you, you have to find that yourself. And, you know, that there's a very different personality to that sort of, um, broker when you're self-employed to those that are employed um, not saying one is better than the other but there's the advice part but then there's the actual how do you generate that business if it's given to you or you have to go and find it those are very very different personality types yeah I guess it's the uh, the daunting aspect of it the fear of the unfamiliar the fear of the uh, the unknown and like we said we've established that there isn't an awful lot of education about the industry so for a lot of people who are assessing their career options they might sort of kind of shy away from the sector uh, let's say and sort of having experienced the uh, the self-employed side of things um, for yourself Adam I mean it's like what what does it take uh, sort of from your perspective to really sort of go out there and really succeed I mean what do you sort of business leaders or aspiring business leaders rather really need to take into consideration if they're looking to start out in this market? I think be, certainly being a mortgage is, you know, most people will want or have a mortgage, um, generally speaking. Um, so in my mind, when I started, everyone was a potential client. 
I'm not saying go out and say, you know, here's my business card, this is what I do. There is a, I suppose, an art form to uh, generating business, which is to not be salesy or, you know, yeah, I, I don't want to, uh, you know, pick on certain industries, but, mm. you, know, car, you know, used car salesmen or, um, you know, that, you know that sort of ilk where you kind of, you might be in someone's face a little bit. That's That's not, in my opinion or experience, how you generate um, business. I think viewing everyone as a potential customer uh, is a good place to start and also relying on your own network. So, you know, when I started, I wrote down a list of everyone that I knew uh, and what they did for a living. And that was kind of my, my primary list of people that I potentially approach and do business with. But then it went further, which was who do they know you know, that I could potentially do business with. And don't never be afraid to ask for uh, referrals or people that you can speak to. Uh, and then also what to do for a living. So there's certain types of professions that are very good referrers of business. So I do a lot of um, a, lo- a lot of work for private bankers, accountants, solicitors, and their clients. Mm. Um, so it's being mindful, irrespective of what business you're in, being mindful of, what other professions can be complementary to your business and also passing them business as well. You know, it, it is always a two way street. It can't be take, take, take. Uh, so I'm always on the, you know, in any conversation I have, if I think that that person can benefit from speaking to someone that I know, be it, you know, uh, an insurance guy or a solicitor or whatever that might be, then I'm going to, obviously make an introduction because what helps them helps me and helps the person that I'm referring to. And that's, that's really how I think most businesses work, whether, again, it doesn't matter if you're a mortgage broker or again, a solicitor accountant or many, many other types of, uh, types of industries. Um, so it's just being mindful of everyone that you come into contact with might be a potential customer. Um, and ultimately, pick up the phone, go and see people, go to events that you might not want to, because you never know who you might meet. Mm. Uh, being self-employed, you, you're only gonna, you're only going to make any headway with uh, bringing in business by seeing people, talking to people at every opportunity you can. I think that's so, so important, isn't it? Um, it's realising that when you're starting out, you know, you don't have to do everything alone and you're certainly not alone in what you're doing. I mean, there's so, so much value in networking and going chasing after referrals, for instance, and learning from other people. And certainly it's one of the best things you can do, isn't it? I mean, it's not just obviously when you're thinking about scaling up and putting a team of people around you, but there's always room for surrounding yourself with people who are better than you more experienced than you will be able to sort of help you and give you that advice that you need to really get going on that road to success a hundred percent i think any business is the foundations of the people that are around you and there's lots of things that i'm terrible at that uh the other guys are great at and vice versa and it's it's finding those people that can be complementary to your business that can add value but also not feel uh intimidated or or, um, you know, undermined by someone that is better than you, better than you in other areas, because that's only going to enhance your business. 
Exactly right. And I'm just going to take us back to something that you mentioned a little bit earlier on as well, Adam, because it did sort of pique my interest as well. And it was when we were sort of comparing the, uh, you know, the employed mortgage broker to the, uh, you know, the sort of self-employed one, let's say. And it's uh, the difference between, you know, you're being fed referrals, you're advising on uh, different people's uh, circumstances, you go home, um, you get into the office at 9am, you leave at 5, everything's hunky-dory. And then, on the other hand, on the other hand, um, if we flip the coin, you know, you eat what you kill, as you uh, as you said there. Um, with regards to sort of the uh, the self employed outlook, then I mean, how difficult is it to sort of establish a work life balance? Because I can imagine that you've got to put in a lot of hours and a lot of effort to really start to kind of get things off the ground. So, sort of from your personal experience, how was it sort of managing that side of things for you? Uh, thankfully, our, our business is a very sociable business, so. Mm. You know, if if I was going out with a group of friends and, I mean, for me, going out with a group of friends that are bringing friends that I've never met is great because, you know, you can go to the pub or you can, you know, play golf or, or whatever that may look like for that person uh, and still have fun. So uh, my wife always finds it baffling that I can actually work and have fun at the same time uh, because... Uh, she's always, she was always employed. So in her mind, it's like, well, no, if you're going to work, you need to just like the work that you're doing because that's <laughs> working. Um, whereas I'm very fortunate to work in an environment and industry where we do have a lot of fun. And, and sometimes the fun bit is actually meeting new people and establishing relationships. Um, and actually, actually doing the work can sometimes not, you know, that, that's, that's the by, that's the byproduct of doing that as well. So, there's a very good work-life balance in terms of having fun. Mm. Um, it, you know, it can take its toll on the family a bit because you are out quite a lot. Uh, but then, you know, having done this for 15 years, I'm never worried about the phone ringing. Uh, so when it is quiet, I, I, I'm not worried. I'm more, you know, I'm quite happy for that time to spend with my family and take advantage of that. So when I started in 2007, I went to... I think it was about nine networking events a week for three years. But then I didn't have a wife and children. So, you know, I had the opportunity to do that. Now, anyone who does have a wife and children, that doesn't mean you're not going to be successful in this industry. It just means that you have to do things differently. And that might be, um, you know, making taking advantage of week, you know, the week and abs- like weekends being absolutely sacrosanct to the family and having certain nights a week where you, you don't do anything. I think it is that it's a very, very tricky balance, but you can only do what, you know, what makes you comfortable. I think the beauty of the industry is, you know, most people can be very successful at it in, but then success, you know, what, what you're only, your success is only measured by you. It can't be quantified by anyone else. So Mm. if you don't think that you're successful and you're earning, you know, 30 grand or, 200 grand well that's for you to decide what that measure is but you know success for me is being able to uh you know provide for my family sufficiently that we can you know a few holidays a year and you know eat well and you know have you know take the kids away and you know that that's that for me is my measure now in the next five or ten years i've much bigger plans for a business that will grow and grow and grow and become more self-sufficient that that's my goal but you know other people have different measures of success it's not a universal number or or what that may look like 
Exactly right. I mean, you've got to have your own measure of success, haven't you? And maybe I suppose um, some entrepreneurs early on in the uh, in the game, really. I mean, I think they're a little bit guilty sometimes of almost expecting success to come overnight. And of course, that isn't always the uh, the case, is it? And uh, I think um, you've mentioned a really good couple of points there, um, Adam. I think um, one of those was the fact that, you know, it almost doesn't feel like work when sort of you enjoy and you have that passion for what you're doing and you're making a success of yourself. And I think that's when you kind of truly know that, you know, you're in a really good place. And uh, it is so, so important as well to prioritise the spare time, the social time and the time with the family as well, because I think it's something that certainly since the uh, the days of the uh, the COVID pandemic, we've become a lot more aware of, isn't it? The need to kind of take a step back from work as and when we need to have that time for other things to be able to reflect and to make sure that we don't sort of burn out in the work that we're doing, because obviously the consequences of that are um, sort of really well documented and can be really severe so mental health well-being prioritizing yourself from a leadership perspective as well as obviously looking out for the well-being of your colleagues that's all incredibly important isn't it and on well-being you should really lead from the top on that look it's it's, it's the number one thing in it i think any industry irrespective of what you do is mental health because you can't function properly if you're if you're not in the right headspace and you know we, we, we all have our down days or down weeks or longer and uh, it's it's being mindful of accepting that you're in that headspace firstly and then working out how you get out of that headspace to a more positive outlook um i i i'm not i'm not in any way a, a professional at this but i'm just very mindful of our staff and and mm. and myself of you know if i see the telltale signs of be, feeling stressed is to actually acknowledge that and and you know communicate with your colleagues and also your clients as well. And, you know, there'll be clients who might be, you know, very, very um, pushy on trying to get something done. And you just say, look, I I can't look at this today. It don't necessarily need to say why, but communicate with them that, you know, you you will get it done at such and such a time. Because, you know, if if I feel that I'm getting stressed, I might just, you know, leave early for the day or just take a long weekend or something. And, And I'm very fortunate to be able to do that. There's a lot of people that can't, but, it's just being very mindful of where your headspace is at any given time because that, that that's a very slippery slope that can snowball. It can, absolutely right. It is uh, food for thought for anybody that's tuning into this particular podcast. And, you know, if you have been affected by any of the issues that we have touched on today or you are particularly impassioned by some of the subjects that we've touched on, then you can actually leave your own comment with us and that would be via leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash contact hyphen us. And if you wanted to ask a question to either myself um, or Adam that I can forward directly on to him, you can also use that link to uh, to actually submit that um, as well if anything that we've discussed um, does interest you today. Um, before we actually wrap up on the uh, the programme uh, today, Adam, because I'm conscious we're starting to run short of time on the uh, the show now. I do want to talk about the uh, the future, and it is something that you have alluded to already. I mean, you mentioned that you do have sort of big plans um, in the longer term for the uh, for the business, but if we say look ahead to the uh, the sort of next 12 months without obviously giving away anything confidential, um, just wondering if you've got any sort of uh, key milestones um, in the uh, the pipeline, and uh, where where do you see yourself by this time next year? Uh, 12 months is a trickier one to answer just with where I think, you know, I think that's a, that's a, that is a hard one. Mm. A five, a five year one would be brokering Mm. a billion a year. Uh, we're currently 120, um, a billion a year in five years, uh, 20 brokers, four support staff, um, and not advising. I kind of want to come off the tools a bit and grow the business that way. Um, I think uh, as a 
as the MD and managing partner of those two businesses, if I get too involved with the detail, it's very hard to grow the business. So being able to step away a bit, um, I may be a bit more selective on, on the deals that I take on. It allows me to support my brokers a lot more, grow the business more, and ultimately we all do much better out of that. And I do hope that certainly you can execute that mission to the best possible effect. And I'd relish the opportunity at some point in the year, the next few months or indeed years to even welcome you back onto the programme, Adam, and just see how it's all coming together for you because it's been really... Scott, that would be, yeah. yeah, that that would be great. And I just wanted to say uh, thank you so much for having me on. It's been, it's been an absolute pleasure and I really appreciate you reaching out. Yeah, and it's been my pleasure as well welcoming you onto the uh, the show, Adam, and thanks ever so much for your time as well, because without that, we couldn't, of course, chart these real and authentic accounts from real British business leaders out there. And for anybody listening in, if you do want to find out a little bit more about Adam's business, uh, mahelixfp.co.uk, I believe, is probably the best port of call, isn't it, Adam? It is, and our other one is uh, helixsf.co.uk. Fantastic. Uh, do, of course, um, if you're interested in anything that we've discussed today, do go and check out uh, those websites. And just for business leaders, leaders of organisations, uh, heads, CEOs, for instance, if you are tuning into this programme today and you feel that you have your own topic of interest to bring to the discussion table on this or any other topical matter or issue, then you too can apply to be on the programme, just to remind you. And that will be via leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply and um, for now it has been my immense pleasure to welcome adam styles partner helix financial partners and md of helix structured finance onto today's show thanks again for your time adam and as always to everybody tuning in i've been your host scott challoner and next time we'll be back with a whole new perspective on leadership and current affairs but until then take care all and goodbye <laughs>